was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today, I am honored to be joined once again by Broadway legend Bob Fitch, and I know you'll all be eager to hear the rest of what he has to say. So, without further ado, Bob Fitch. So I want to restart by asking you about Lendon Ear. So what was it like to work with Charles Nelson Riley and Elizabeth Allen? Uh, it was great. Uh, Charlie, they were very nice people. And uh, the show had been kind of going down. And I replaced in it. And... Uh, I had one silly number where I'm crawling on my hands and knees and Elizabeth Allen is sitting on me singing as I, <laughs> I crawl across the stage. It was very funny. And I, I do eccentric dancing, which is funny. And, uh, so suddenly the show was getting uh, wonderful applause, you know, and the cast said, what happened? And the choreographer said, well, we have a new guy, which was me. I have no idea why it got tremendous applause. I got a nice, I got a great reaction from what I had to do. And, uh, but they said in a funny way, I saved the show. But I didn't save the show, really. It was a choreographer who said that uh, they needed uh, somebody else in the role to, to whatever, do, do that. And I fit, I fit his image of what was needed. And Charlie Riley later on taught acting classes. And I took his class and he was terrific. He was just so down to earth and so real. And he had people doing like crazy things, which made them relax and made them better actors, you know? And uh, I liked Charlie a lot, but Charlie was wonderful to work with. I really enjoyed that show. It was one of those wonderful shows that just everything clicks, you know, everything mm -hmm. feels good. So, I, I will never forget it. We were off Broadway over on Second Avenue, Eighth Eighth Street, and uh, it was great. It was great. I'll never forget that. Anyway, so what did you sort of notice that the difference was between working off Broadway and on Broadway in terms of how the show got put on? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, well, Broadway, of course, wasn't as big a budget. It was smaller. The theaters were smaller. They didn't charge as much for the tickets, you know. So the budgets were were less. Of course, the actors got paid less. <laughs> but that's the nature of the beast, you know. The point was to work and to do what you know how to do and uh, try to make it better, you know. You just you work all the time to keep your craft going and try to get better at what you do. Uh, at least that's the way I think about it. And uh, so doing all those shows, 
kind of gave me a continuity of making money, but it also gave me a continuity of, of working and working with different people and learning different things, you know. That was still early on in the 60s, early 60s, when I was doing it, when kind of everything was new to me, too. And uh, so, you know, you learn from every experience and from everybody. You know, people advise you about this and that. If you have questions, like uh, Charlie and uh, Liz were really great. You could talk to them. You could ask them questions, uh, you know. And uh, it, was a, it was really a great time, really a wonderful time. When I did stock before I ever did Broadway or off-Broadway, the first thing I did was stock. There was a guy there who helped me with my makeup, things I didn't know anything about, you know. And uh, kind of, it was like one of the first things I had to play was an old man. <laughs> no, I wouldn't have to play it anymore. I'd just be there. <laughs> but he just helped me uh, with makeup, and I learned how to, you know, do... Before I learned how to do real makeup, I learned how to do old man's makeup, which was, which is very funny, you know, but uh, whatever, it was, uh, there were fun things that happened all the time, you know, unexpected things. And uh, in this business, every show is different. All the people you work with are different. The directors, the choreographers are different. And uh, so being able to kind of work with all those people gives you a, kind of great ideas, lots of ideas, you know. Um, think The idea of thinking vertically means woof, thinking outside the box, you know. So that means um, if you have an idea or a problem, you have all kinds of things to think about and your imagination kind of runs wild. There was a wonderful um, definition of an artist. An artist is somebody who changes his mind. In other words, it's not just one thing. You mm -hmm. have like all kinds of possibilities to think of to, uh, to, to solve your problem, and then you choose the best one. But anyway, anyway, go ahead, ask me a question. I also want to ask you about doing We're Civilized at the Yonhus Playhouse. Yeah, <clears throat> We're Civilized. Um, I hurt my leg. I couldn't dance. I had a cast on it. Oh. So I did the show with crutches. And uh, I did the character and the part in crutches. It couldn't really dance, but, you know. Um, there was, in, uh, in, uh, we're civilized. There was a wonderful couple, John and Julie Hoser. And uh, they went on out to, uh, Santa Barbara, and we became the best of friends. I cannot remember the woman that was a star in it. She became a, a, a movie star. I cannot think. Black. Black. Oh, dear God. Karen Black. That's it. Karen Black. She, I think I fell in love with her. She was, she was kooky and funny and very dynamic. And... Uh, I don't know, just, uh, just the way she worked and the way she acted. Um, I loved working with her, and I loved, uh, I, I kind of fell in love with her, but, you know, at a distance, because I was already married. But uh, that doesn't mean you don't have good feelings one way or the other about people, you know. You may admire them, um, 
kind of like fall in love with their work, fall in love with their personalities, their, you know. So I, that really happens because the problem with this business is you work with people very intensely, maybe for a short period of time, and you get to like them, and then show is over. Yeah. You, you want to do other things. And I remember it was like 27 years before I saw somebody again and worked with them again. <clears throat> and I had liked them, but we just never got together. They went out of town with the show. I went out of town, you know, and then all of a sudden you're back together in another show. But it's been so long, it's just kind of hard to keep up with people because of the, you know, you're not working at a job like somebody in an office for 20 years or whatever, <clears throat> you know. A lot of shows lasted six months. Back in the 60s, shows didn't last long. They lasted six, eight months. Nowadays, um, they try to make them last three, four, five years. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. They, uh, they charge more. They have different uh, advertising now. They have television advertising. They didn't really have that back then. And uh, tickets were a lot cheaper, too. You know, like Annie, when I did Annie... The tickets were the tickets were nineteen dollars, but they were sold out all the time. And the scalpers, the guys, the kind of the crooks actually who sold tickets on the side, would actually stand out in front of the theater, and they were selling tickets for two hundred and fifty dollars because it was such a, a hit show, you know. And later on, we did it after uh, after it closed. Uh, tickets went up to. Well, several hundred dollars, you know, it was, it, was, it was crazy. It was insane the way the tickets in the theater have changed. Yeah. Any rate. Uh, no. I, I actually want to ask you next about, you mentioned that you toured entertaining the troops in the army. So yes. when did you do that and where did you go? Okay, uh, it was 1958. And um, back then the army had a... Uh, a talent show and everybody in all of the places in the world where there was an army base uh, competed and there were like seven different categories like a soloist singer uh, or musician or whatever um, I had a partner and we created a comedy dance act and I was I was the lowly private and he was the hated second lieutenant that's the first kind of officer of rank then you go to captain and major and all that well he played the first lieutenant which all the lower soldiers hated the first second lieutenants were really snotty usually so he played i played the idiot soldier and he played the uh, second lieutenant who was going to horn in on my act i'm out there dancing and he comes on with a little ukulele. Oh, man. And then he says, I am part of this act and we will do it. So he ended up jumping into my arms. I dropped him. I stepped on his stomach over him. The audience is laughing. We get up and we have a challenge. He does something. I copy it. I do something. He copies it. Then finally we're dancing together. And, uh, and it was a great act. But we also got... Uh, hired for it, taken for it, because I could also do magic, because we would go to hospital shows where we couldn't really do all of the big stuff, the dancing mm -hmm. with the orchestra and all that. 
but I could go and entertain doing magic tricks. And he was very funny. He was a master of ceremonies, the MC, and he would tell jokes. So as a result of the fact we could do so many things, we got hired as like 10, there were 10 of us in the show, and then there were probably uh, that many musicians. And we went around the world, almost every army base in the world. We went to Japan, we went to Vietnam. Uh, we were in, no, that was before Korea. And uh, we went to almost only all the army bases in the United States, up in Canada, um, up in Alaska. Uh, we went to uh, Europe, to Germany, uh, England, Italy, <clears throat> Uh, Lord, Panama Canal. Oh God, we were all over the place. And uh, my first baby was born when I was in the Panama Canal. And I went crazy right in the middle of the dance number. I took out a bag of cigars and I threw them at the audience. It's a boy. <laughs> I was crazy. I was. I was crazy. It was a <laughs> and I wasn't there. My wife was in San Francisco. You know, I said, oh, what can you do? <clears throat> so we did that for about 10 months. So that was great. And they don't have that show anymore, but at the time, it was a way to uh, make the soldiers feel better because they're so isolated in most of the places where they are. They're away from family. <clears throat> so to have a funny show, uh, you know, was a, it was one way the Army had of trying to entertain their own troops. When they let us go, uh, I finished my tour and they <clears throat> released us in New York City. And so I was there to start my auditioning for shows and Broadway and summer stock and things. So that was that was really a wonderful time. I finished my last year in the Army, going around the world. It was great. So did the troops always like what you did? Oh, God, yes. <clears throat> because it was a comedy act, you know. They would laugh and they'd clap and, and they would boo the second lieutenant, boo, <laughs> they came on, which was funny. It was funny. <laughs> In fact, in, in Annie, the first time I did something special to make, to make my, I was the villain, to make myself even more of a villain. The first night I did that, we came out for the bows, and as I took a bow, the audience went, boo! Laugh <laughs> <laughs> right in the middle of the bow. <clears throat> but I, I knew what I had done worked, so uh, I, didn't, I didn't mind the boo, it was... In fact, they really hated me, but they were, you know, they were cheering me after. So I want to ask you about My Fair Lady at City Center. You got to, you worked with Hanya Holm, who was a very famous choreographer. So She was a very sweet, she was a sweetheart. I only worked with her that one time. <clears throat> she already had a reputation, of course, because she'd done the original Fair Lady, you know, <clears throat> German lady. And uh, very kind of formal, you know, proper, and uh, very kind, and patient, patient with the dancers. But then, but then she had done it before, and the show had been a hit, so there was no pressure this time to get a, you know, to create a hit because it had already been a hit. And yeah. It's a revival of the show, you know, and we did it at City Center. It was good. People loved the show, and it's based on, you know, the uh, the play. So, 
it was pretty well known by then, so it was very well, very well accepted. And uh, yeah, as a revival at City Center, it was uh, it, it didn't go to a Broadway house. It was City Center, so it was a, a short-term show. It didn't last a long time, several months, but you know, not a long time really. <clears throat> so you know. You work when you can, and uh, uh, often I auditioned for shows that never got on. They lost their money, or they didn't have enough money, or uh, they decided not to bring it in. I, I did uh, Hell's a Pop with Jerry Lewis. <clears throat> I was the deputy, which means I was the union representative in the show. And I went to the uh, union, and I said, you owe the cast $50,000. I came in about 11 o'clock on Monday, because we closed Sunday, and uh, he said, well, the, the representative from the producer's office said, you don't owe us anything. Give us the bond back. And I said, no, no, no. They closed us. They're supposed to give two weeks notice. They gave us five days notice. They owe us for that extra week. There are people who have been on understudying. They have to get paid extra money for that. They didn't get paid because we closed so slowly. There are all kinds of things, and all that, I have it all listed right here, and uh, you 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 know you can deal with it. But uh, then the producer sued Jerry for a million dollars because he forced him to close the show, which was a lie. He closed it because of his ego, the producer, and uh, he was suing him for a million dollars. And he actually, the producer actually won the million dollars from Jerry. I couldn't believe it. And then I found out that Jerry was getting a divorce and he didn't want to pay his wife the million dollars. So oh. he gave it to the producer. Oh, no. Crazy things happen, you know. So when I, was in I want to ask about a show that you were part of that didn't end up making it to Broadway, which was Scandals. <clears throat> Scandals was a revision of the show that had been on Broadway, Sugar Babies. <clears throat> in a funny way, it was a revival, but we did it in summer stock. Well, we did it in, in regional theaters is better. And we maybe we would play there six weeks in each of the theaters, you know. And uh, uh, it was supposed to come to Broadway. Rip Taylor was the star of it. And when we went out to Las Vegas and Los Angeles, as Mickey Rooney had originally done it with Ann Miller, he would play the, the lead comic person. And uh, we went to Vegas. We, uh, yeah, it was, a, it, was, it was a great fun, that show. It was great fun because I was like, again, the physical comic you know, in the show. And Rip was very funny. And it was very funny because he could handle almost any situation. Anything somebody in the audience would say, which they, they seem to do it all the time, especially in the theaters where we were, and then when we were in Vegas and Atlantic City, people just talked to us out of the audience, and he could answer any kind of weird or funny remark from the audience. He had an incredible vocabulary of material from all those years, I guess, in theater uh, and nightclubs. That he could do. Mickey Rooney couldn't do that. Mickey Rooney was a comic actor, but Rip Taylor was a comedian. 
which is different. Comic actor can do be funny in a part, but that doesn't make him necessarily a teller of jokes. You know, difference. So um, it was funny. It was great working with both of them, and uh, they couldn't get the money together to bring it to Broadway. And uh, so you know, so we did it all around the country, and it was fun to do. And people loved the show. They loved to laugh. You know, um, that was kind of it. It was fun. It was fun. And uh, Rip Taylor went on to do funny thing happened on the way to the forum, and he called me up because I had been in the show, and uh, he called me up and and I worked with him a little bit. He asked a lot of questions because he was studying his part. And he wanted to know what what had been done, like here and there, in this scene and that scene, how to think about it, um, you know. So that, I helped him. That was nice. I helped him with uh, thinking about his new role, you know. So he became kind of a consultant. <laughs> so you were in the adult ensemble of Henry Sweet Henry. So what was it like to do that show? Um... <laughs> That was at the Palace Theater, and uh, Don Amici was the star of that show, and people had known Don Amici from early radio shows and from movies, and he was an unlikely character. Uh, he had a scene in the show with, uh, with a girl... Casey Townsend. Oh boy, I can't believe I remember that. Well, good. And it was one of the funniest scenes ever. I never saw the audience laugh as hard as those two. I don't know. I would like to go back and, and be able to see that again myself. Because I'm in the show, so I can't quite figure it out. But now I could go back and look at it and say, why is that so funny? Their, their reactions to each other were priceless. They were so lewd and nude and just outrageous and the audience went oh! and they'd start to talk again and the audience would pick up and laugh again I mean I never saw an audience start to laugh maybe three or four times they'd stop and then they'd start again it's almost like I'm in the audience and I start to laugh and I laugh and I laugh and I stop laughing and I look at the guy next to me and and he's laughing, and I start to laugh again. It was bizarre. It was like laughing stops, boom, starts up again. <laughs> and they couldn't talk. They couldn't go on with the scene because the audience had such a weird reaction. I mean, it was very funny. Never have I experienced that same thing in the audience. <laughs> I'd also like to ask you about Promises, Promises, and on that show you worked with Michael Bennett. It was choreographed by Michael Bennett. So what was it like to work with him? Um, promises, promises were great. Michael Bennett was terrific in that. He did something. He went to Bob Fosse and he said, uh, I want to do this number where everybody's all together and they're all moving at the same time, but they're all doing something different. Not the same choreography, you know? And Bob Fosse said, that's not possible. And Michael, Michael Bennett made it possible. I mean, we're standing this close to each other, 
and I'm doing something here, and somebody's doing something there, mm-hmm. and somebody over here is doing the back, and it's like, I couldn't believe it. The way it all managed, and the whole group, like, moved, burp, 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 at the same pace, you know, like our feet were tied together or something. But uh, he was able to, he was able to accomplish that. And his, his dances were wonderful. And uh, the three girls on the desk at the end of the, the first act, it's turkey lurkey time, Tom Turkey ran away and he just came home. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> it was, it was, uh, it was great. And then um, I understudied the, the three uh, businessmen and uh, where can you, if you're a kid, where can you, if you're a girl, take a man? Uh, boy, a long time ago, my God. Where can you, if you're a man, take a girl, if she's a girl, whatever. Anyway, it was the four businessmen, four crazy businessmen who wanted to uh, have a night out with a girl and not tell anybody and not tell her wives. And it was all this kind of a funny cheating thing, you know. But, but I took over one of the roles, Mr. Kirkaby. And uh, I finished when the show ran. I finished the last, uh, I don't know, year and a half doing that role. And uh, yeah, that was fun. That was fun doing that. And we, we did it again later on in, in uh, New Jersey. Um, a, so your next show after Promises, Promises, I think, was Coco. So what was it like to work with Catherine Hepper? Catherine was was fabulous. She uh, she rode her bicycle every day. She kept in shape. I mean, she wasn't a kid, you know. Yeah. Uh, there were wonderful things that happened with her. I remember checking in one day and signing in, uh, or signing out, actually. And uh, it was winter. And the ice was probably about a foot thick outside the stage door. And Catherine started to go out, and there was a dresser there. And Catherine looked down at her feet, and she said, you're not wearing boots. She said, it's snowing outside. She said, oh, I know, Miss Hepburn. She said, why aren't you wearing boots? She said, well, I, 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 I can't afford it, Miss Hepburn. She said, oh, what size are you? Seven. Okay. Here. And she took off her fur-lined boots, and she said, try them on. Do they fit? Perfectly, Miss Hepburn. Good. That's what you use from now on. And then Catherine walked out in the ice to her chauffeur, to her car, in bare feet. <laughs> That's like that, you know. And uh, there was the first day of rehearsal. I played Mr. Sachs. Well, back Bloomingdale, Best End Sachs, the four buyers from the four department stores, you know. And uh, first day of rehearsal, it's the first first scene of the second act, and she's lying on a couch, and I'm behind her looking down, and we're the four buyers. As it goes, she's coming back. Coco's coming back from retirement, and she's now, you know, making clothes again, and uh, starting her 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 business up again, and she doesn't get good reviews. She's a failure, and she's on her couch. Uh, and the four buyers come in from the United States. This is in Paris, supposedly. 
and they say, oh, we want 10,000 of these and 5,000 of those. And, and Catherine suddenly realizes that her whole showing, her whole line of, of, of clothes are saved, saved by the American buyers, you know. At any rate, um, I'm looking down on her and she says a line. And at that moment, she realized her collection is saved. And I see her eye start to get red underneath. And then the eye starts to vibrate. And then the jaw blah, 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 starts to vibrate. And all of a sudden, whoosh, a flood of tears. Um, That's by the numbers. One, two, you know, three, blah, 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 four, blah, and then tears. I, was, I looked down. And I was so amazed, I forgot my line. And she, she opens her eye and she said, she gives me my line. She knew everybody's line in the show. I couldn't believe it. I said, oh my God, this woman is brilliant. And I said, I'm sorry, Miss. <laughs> we did it seven times. The first six times, I forgot my lines. Because every time it was the eye, the red, the vibration, the drama, every time it was the same thing. And finally, on the sixth one, I said, I am so sorry, Miss Hepburn. I can't help it. I'm in awe. I see you doing this by the numbers. I can't believe you can do that. And she opens her eyes and looks at me and she says, I am a professional. <laughs> I said, okay, okay, okay. So the next time we did it, I remembered. The laughing helped me sort of relax, you know. There was another time when we were doing the show, she forgot her line. And uh, she was like this. She didn't know what to do. There's two of us behind the couch, and there's two of us standing out outside in, in front of the couch to the sides, you know. And she looks at Chad, who's out to her right, he looks like Clark Gable with a mustache and everything. And she says, uh, uh, um, kiss me. And he says, uh, uh, so he walks over and kisses her. And she said, oh, <laughs> thank you. And this little numbers of line goes on. After the show, she calls the four of us to her dressing room. And we said, uh-oh, what's going to happen now? And she began in the room. She said, lock the door. Okay. She said, okay, Chad, that was a guy with a mustache. She said, Chad, you saved the day. I asked you to kiss me because I couldn't think of what I was supposed to say. And I saw you and I said, kiss me. And you came over and kissed me. So we got the show going again. Thank you. But she said, if that ever happens again, don't do it. Don't kiss me because I want to remember that the last person to kiss me was, uh, I can't think of his name. Anyway, another actor that she'd known for years, but uh, oh, running a version while was in it. George Rose, famous English actor was in it. Mm -hmm. Michael Bantall was the, uh, uh, the director. So I'm trying to remember the guy's name. Oh God, famous, famous movie actor. Anyway, she said, I want to remember that he kissed me last. Don't, so don't do it. You know, and then, then it was Christmas time and she said, she called the whole company together. She said, all right, 
it's Christmas and I don't want you giving me anything. If you have to give me something, don't buy anything. You have to make it. <clears throat> so she gave all of the principals, there were 11, I think there were 11 of us. <clears throat> she gave us all uh, copies of her paintings that she made when she was at brother's house in Connecticut. She gave us all like, uh, one was an illustration of her, of her, which I got to Bob from Katie, love from Katie. Oh, uh, you know, it's my favorite, one of my favorite uh, art, artifacts from, from other actors. She was, she was wonderful. Uh, my wife and I went over to her apartment and uh, we just had a very nice time. She, uh, she was very nice. She had a strange thing about, she, she told people, don't stand in the wings, you know, while I'm on stage. I, I don't want to see you, you'll distract me. So nobody in the wings. In fact, she didn't even want the conductor who's down in the pit conducting, you know. She didn't even want him looking at her. So for a while he looked down and he conducted her like this. <laughs> she just had a little, little funny things, you know, but, uh, and Michael Bennett wanted her to dance, but she said, no, Michael, I can't. And at one point she was on the steps and she fell down and the guys were on the sides catching her and they turned her upside down and over onto her feet and her nose bled. Oh. She said, See, Michael, I told you I couldn't, I couldn't dance because my veins are so thin and anything like that will cause them to bleed. So uh, that was frustrating for him. That was Michael Bennett again, you know, did that. Yeah. But she was quite wonderful, I thought. <clears throat> did you think did you think that she was a great singer and dancer as well as No. Or you she dancer. She uh, mm -hmm. there was one <clears throat> the set was a big turntable and uh, at one point the dancers were on the turntable in different poses and things, wearing her clothes, you know, uh, modeling. So uh, and she he wanted her to dance, and she said, oh, no, Michael, I'll, I'll be so clumsy. Why don't I just sit here and I will watch the dancers, <clears throat> and I'll focus on them. That way the audience will. She was trying to talk him out of having her dance. <clears throat> and she said, what's his name? Uh, in My Fair Lady, she said, I talked to him, and he said, you know, you don't have to sing your songs. You can talk them. You can speak them like he did in Fair Lady, which is what she did in Sherry, in uh, Sherry, good, you got me going now, <laughs> in Coco. So, uh, yeah, she spoke her words, spoke her songs, rather. So, uh, lots of wonderful memories from her. <clears throat> she had a, a story one time. She came in, I came in at the same time she did into the uh, backstage to sign in. And she said, oh, that was great, great. I said, hey, Katie, what happened? She said, well, I was out with my friend, and uh, he's a director. I was visiting him, and when I came outside, there was a big truck in front of our car, and there were cars in front and back, so we couldn't get out of our parking space. And the truck driver was in the truck, and my chauffeur went to him and said, uh, could you please move uh, just in, until Miss Hepburn gets out. She has to go to the theater. 
and then you can back up. He said, go to hell. Oh, my God. He said, no, 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 you don't understand. She has a show tonight. She has to. So I said, go to hell. And, and she said, he came back to me in the car. So I went out and I, I said, I'm Patton Hepburn. Get the hell out of that car. I'm going to punch you in the face. Whatever. So he got out and she punched him. And he started to hit her. And the chauffeur and the, the, her friend, the director, were stopping him. And they stopped him. And they said, you want to press? And the cops came up. They said, you want to press charges, Miss Hepburn? He said, no, he's probably got a wife and family. I don't want to put him in jail. No, I'll let him go. But what she did do was she got his name and his address. She found out everything about him. Got his history, for heaven's sake. Just in case, you know. Yeah. Another great story. Great story. I forgot about that. Was they were building a big building right across the street from the theater on 52nd Street. And every Wednesday matinee, the guys would be outside. It was about, the framework was about seven stories high at that point. And you'd hear the guys with their, with their hammers doing, you know, and you could hear it in the theater. And right at that time, she had a crying scene. She was kneeling on the floor with her niece in the show and telling the story about her father. And there was a picture of her father in the back that showed it up. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the scene, which made people cry, was a blah, 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 blah. And she went to the producer and she said, oh, my God, can you stop them from doing that at that point in the show? It's killing my scene. He said, oh, oh no, 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 Mr. Trepper, those are the Teamsters. You, you can't bother them. No, no, we can't do anything about it. And she said, oh, for heaven's sake. So I'll do it myself. <laughs> so she got a case of Jack Daniels liquor, right, uh, bourbon, and she carried it up. There was a ramp that went up to the second level. She carried this box up on the ramp, put it on a table, and she said, oh, yeah, boys, you come over here, come over here. I want to talk to you for a minute. She said, I'm Catherine Hepburn, you know. I'm a star, and right, right down there, right down there is my theater. And every Wednesday, you guys are going blah, 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 right in my scene. Now, those people are paying a lot of money for tickets, and you've just ruined their ticket, and you ruined my scene. How would you like it if you were in the theater, and you were having a wonderful moment, and suddenly it was destroyed by all that noise? Now, I know you have to work, but can you go to the other side of the building and maybe do some sweeping? <laughs> Imagine those guys sweeping, you know? Or something quiet, working on the plans. She said, well, I don't know. Do what you can do. Here's, here's, a, here's a present for you. All these bottles of, of bourbon sitting there, you know. And let's see what you can do. And after that, there was no more noise. Um. The matinee, at that time, on the matinee. And Brisson, uh, the producer, he said, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. She said, well, I just had to take matters in my own hands. And she was that, she was that way. She was very direct. She was very honest. And uh, I, I loved her. I loved her. She was just great. And I, I will never give up that picture I got of her, that self-illustration, you know. I wish I had it. I could show it to you here. <laughs> I have it up in Canada with me. So... Okay.
you were telling me that, that you turned down sugar and walking happy. So what was the reason that you turned those two things down? Well, I had done a lot of shows and I had learned by this time, I'd taken acting, Sandy Meisner was my acting teacher and somewhere in the middle of the second year, I had a boom, a light bulb went off. And I suddenly understood what acting was all about. It wasn't pretending. The whole process of acting suddenly made sense to me. In a funny way, it was my therapy. Uh, so anyway, I didn't do those two shows because I said, okay, I've been dancing and singing all this time. I want to do principal roles. I want to do, you know, leads and characters. I don't want to just be a dancer who sings, who, by the way, understudies because I'm a good character type or has small parts. I want to do some, I want to do some good parts. And so I was asked to do those as a dancer. And I said, as hard as it was, because I wanted to make a living, I said, no, I can't. I'm trying to become a principal. And one of the choreographers got mad at me, you know, the next show that came along, he, he wouldn't even uh, look at me. So that was the price I paid for making that choice. But the truth is, because I made that choice, uh, when I did Sugar, I thought I was going in for a principal role. But oh. They called me back and it was a men's call, the men's singers. And I went, oh, oh. I thought this was a principal. You said, well, it's for all the men. I went, yeah. So when it was through, they asked me to um, stay. But it was for one of the singers, as one of the singers doing some small parts. And I said to the stage manager, I said, I'm sorry, you better tell Gala right now that I can't do it. Why you get, so you can get another guy while they're all still here. Because I, I'm not doing this. And so Gower came and said, what's the problem, Bob? I said, well, Gower, I'm trying to become a principal, and I appreciate, you know, you're asking me to be a part, but I'm trying to do principal parts. And I, I, he said, well, there are some small parts in this, you know. I said, ah, I'm sorry, I can't do it. He said, well, I understand. He said, well, good luck. Well, then he hired me back. Uh, what did I do? Was it Mac and, Mac and Mabel? Mac and Mabel, thank you. You know better than I do. <laughs> Too many thoughts here. Anyway, he hired me for Mac and Mabel where I did do a principal part. If I had done chorus in Sugar for him, I wouldn't have done a principal part in Mac and Mabel. So by taking a chance, I was able to come back and do a principal part. Because he had different thoughts about me then, you know. Yeah. And that that happened, you know. And I, I I would have had two more shows to my credit, but on the other hand, I wouldn't have had Mac and Mabel to my credit. Right. I had two Hirschfelds, uh, Mac and Mabel and Annie. So I loved working with Gower. In fact, he called me back when they were doing Forty Second Street. He oh. called me on the phone. And he said, can you be bad? 
I said, <laughs> can I be bad? He said, yeah. I said, well, yeah. I was an Annie. I mean, Mac and Mabel, I was this lighthearted, funny character, you know? And uh, like a film, well, I'm trying to think of the different comics in the silent films. Anyway, one of those things. He said, but you were such a nice guy in Mac and Mabel. He said, but I can't imagine you being bad. I said, well, didn't you see me? I played the villain in Nanny. I was bad there. He said, well, you know, I watched about 45 minutes of it. And he said, there was all those kids in the first part of the first 45 minutes. He said, I couldn't take it with all the kids. He said, so I had to leave. I said, well, 45 minutes is just about when I came on with Lily into meet Hannigan, you know, in, in the orphanage. I said, too bad you missed me. Okay. Then he called me again, like just before they went out of town to Washington, D.C. And he said, can you be bad? <laughs> said, yes, Gower, I can be bad. He said, well, I don't know yet. He said, I have an idea. And I, well, let me go, let me go to Washington, D.C. So he was two weeks in Washington, D.C. He called me again. And he said, can you come here? I'm for a few days, and I, I just have an idea for another character in the show. I said, okay. So I went to Washington, D.C., and he said, well, watch the show. So I watched the show that night, and after the show, he and Michael Stewart, the writer, uh, asked me, he said, what would you think? I said, what am I, a show doctor? <laughs> you know? I said, what do I think? I said, well, uh, there were a couple of problems I didn't understand, and I don't remember what they are now, but so I told him, and, and Michael said, oh, my God. Thanks for telling us that. If, if I had left that in the show, the critics would have killed us for that. They would have caught it. So you caught a couple of things. Thanks, you helped us already. So then, Gower said, stay around. Stay around for a couple of days and uh, watch the show. And we would meet after the show at night. Any more ideas? And so finally, the night before I left, I was there three days. And... Uh, the night before I left, he said, come in tomorrow morning. I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you. I had this idea about this this guy, this extra character who's a friend of Jordan Marsh, is the director, and, and he helps him and uh, just has... I said, okay. So I got there at 9 o'clock the next morning. He wasn't there. And I waited and I waited. He wasn't there. And there was nobody there except me. So I went up to the rehearsal room and I... I had stayed up the night before until about 3 a.m., and I decided I was going to do an audition for him. I was going to be the character he wanted, who was a friend of the director, Jordan Marsh, in the show. At 5 o'clock, he came in. He said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. He said, I've been at the hospital all day getting a blood transfusion, because uh, he was kind of like white as a sheet. And I went, oh, I'm sorry, Derek. And he said, well, so what are we going to do? I said, well... I prepared an audition for you. It's about six minutes long. So, oh, goody, goody, goody. So he sat on the train, which was in the in the uh, in the wings. Sat on a chair in the train set that was there. I pulled out a little stool, and I pretended he was sitting on the stool, saying, "Hey, Jordan, uh, come on, come on. This uh, this is ridiculous." I said, "Hey, you know that guy Goward Champion? You know they say he's old hat. He'll never work again." You know. I said, "But he's been doing something. He's been working." He's been learning, 
He's got a lot of successful shows under his belt. You bet your bottom dollar he's going to make it this time. He's going to make it. And I did some juggling and magic. I did some platforms. Six minutes. Anyway, I finished this audition. I looked up, and he was crying. And I went, oh, my God, I'm sorry. He said, no, no, no. He said, that's exactly what I wanted. He said, oh, my God, that's great. That's great. Okay, I know what to do now. Go home. Well, okay. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and then they opened. The show was a hit. And uh, the producer uh, came out at the end of the show and he said, uh, I have terrible news to tell you, in spite of this wonderful opening night, but Goward Champion died today. He died before the show opened. But the producer wouldn't tell all the actors because he was afraid of they would fall apart, which they which they did after he told them. They were even mad that he held out on them. But so it was about two months later. I bumped into the dance captain who was assisting him, and I said, "Did I really help him? I I never really knew what happened." She said, "Oh yeah, I cannot tell you. He was fighting with the producer." And the producer wanted a, a, a musical, an old-fashioned musical comedy. And you wanted to keep the drama of the movie, whether it were these gangsters who were going to kill him if he didn't pay back the money debt he owed them. And they were waiting to see if the show were a hit, because if it were, he could pay them back. If it weren't, he was going to be dead. So he had this idea of this other guy who would stand around and, and help Jordan, the, the director. And he said, after he showed you, after you showed him your audition, he said, okay, I realized that that distracts from the main story. I was wrong. And that, that was very helpful. So now I can go ahead and make this a musical comedy like, uh, like, like the, the producer wants. So it became a, a hit, you know. So I, I really felt good about that. But took me a while to find out to get the answer, you know. Yeah. It was sad, but it was, I was just so glad that I could have helped him for those few days. You know, that was very, it was a really nice story, you know. Mm -hmm. so. so, I want to ask you about performing in Mac and Mabel. So, what was it like to have the cycle of different Mabels out of town? Thirty-day Peters, okay. Yeah. Well, she was great. Um, the other girl, cannot think of her name at this point, was very sweet and very pretty and very talented. But she didn't have the uh, whoa, kind of oof, so to speak, that Bernadette had. And it was an intuitive thing for Gower to realize that he had a very feisty kind of character to play the part, you know. And... Uh, Bernadette was really good. She was really good. Well, obviously, because she went on to do lots of other things, you know. And, uh, yeah, I liked her a lot. I liked her a lot. She was a very feisty girl and very, very smart, good singer, and a good actress, you know. Well, that was good. That was good. So it was by the same team that had created a lot of hit musicals, but it didn't do as well. So did you sort of see that coming, or was that a surprise? That was a surprise. 
Yeah, that was as far as the point was. The problem was the producer David Murray. Thank you. I had a uh, I had a sort of a a little tiff with David Merrick. Oh. I did another show before this. I'll, I'll get back to this one. Honest. I was in another show before this, and I had when I went to sign my contract, I had asked him for more money. I said, and uh, the guy that was in charge of the money, the money man, said, no, no, you can't do that. So uh, anyway, I didn't get the money. And I was on my elevator, on the elevator. It was on the third floor. I'm going to wait down to the street, and David Merrick was in the elevator. And, uh, and I turned and looked at him, and he said, you know why you didn't get the get more money today? I said, no, sir, I don't. He said, because you didn't have the edge. And I went, I didn't have the edge. That's right. <laughs> he laughed at me and walked out. I went, okay, you got to have the edge. So, in this show, I asked the guy for more money. He said, well, you're not going to get it. I said, well, I think I will. He said, if I get the money, I'll get the part. So, if you can't do it, I'll walk out. Thanks very much. I started to walk, praying to God, please God, don't let me lose this job. <laughs> and the guy said, all right, all right, all right. So he changed the contract, and I signed it. And as luck would have it, I'm going down the elevator again. David Merrick's in the elevator again. And I turned and looked at him and said, oh, David, I have to thank you. I have to thank you for what you taught me the last time I saw you. You taught me to that I have to have the edge. And I said, I guess, I guess this time I had the edge, huh? <laughs> I laughed at him and walked out. I said, you son of a man. <laughs> I said, thanks. <laughs> So we had our little tiff going, you know. Oh, well, okay. I, I wanted to ask you also what it was like to work with Jerry Herman, who composed it. Oh, Jerry was fine. He was, uh, he was fine. He was great. Um, yeah, they all good. I mean, they, they, want to, they want to get the show on. They want to do it as best as possible. And, they all, they all really worry when it comes to being out of town. Tryouts for out of town are usually about six weeks, you know. Sometimes longer, sometimes not. We'd go to Philadelphia or um, New Haven. Sometimes we went to Detroit or Washington, D.C. Uh, Philadelphia, did I say that? Yeah. And uh, to try out the theaters there, you know, sort of surrounding the uh, New York area. And sometimes they have to cut out a scene or cut out a song and try to put one in. That happened to us and Annie, because Annie wasn't anywhere ready to be even rehearsed when we did it. But that's, that's another story. But uh, anyway, Jerry was great. Jerry was great. I, I, Very talented, huh? I was going to say, I actually do want to ask you next about Annie. So what was your sort of audition process like well, that was interesting oh, you hit the nail on the head there I was doing the Playboy Club they were reopening the Playboy Club on East 59th Street 
and uh, uh, Martin Charney called me on the phone, and he said, uh, uh, we were considering you for playing a little bit bad guy in Annie. And uh, I said, well, I'd love to do it. I said, well, you have to audition first. Well, I couldn't believe it. I, I said, I had an idea. I said, I have an idea. I'm playing right now at the Playboy Club. Why don't you come bring your wife or your girlfriend, whatever? Uh, why don't you come and see the show? Sit on me. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll get you in. And if you want to see it, it could be my audition. So he said, okay. So he came and he saw me do the Playboy show. I was doing uh, a little singing, a little dancing, a little magic. And uh, so I called up my agent and I said, Martin Chan is coming to see the show. Why don't you bring your your uh, boyfriend and see the show the same night? I was just, I was just a kicky idea I had. She said, okay, I'd love to do that. So as it turns out, the Playboy Club wasn't very big, the theater, and so they were seated back to back, you know, one table, another table. I went out to say hello to Martin, enjoy the show, and he said, is that your agent back there? I said, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, it is. It is. You don't have to talk to her. That's just a coincidence, you know. <laughs> yeah, right, coincidence. Fooey. Anyway, so I did the show. And when I came out of the show, the agent said, you're hired. <laughs> that, they, that Martin said, uh, we'd be drawing up contracts. So uh, I, sort of, I sort of finagled that audition. I didn't really audition. I was doing a show, and I got him in there to see it. And uh, so I, I kind of got the audition that way. <laughs> it was kind of sneaky of me, but it, it worked, you know. <laughs> I had a lot more courage then, and to, to dare to try to do things, you know. It doesn't work, it doesn't work. But it did work, so there you are. So at what point in the process of doing Annie did you know that it was going to be the giant hit that it was? Um, I knew it when we first did it at Goodspeed Opera House in Connecticut. Uh, first of all, it wasn't ready. The, we only had... Uh, three-week rehearsal. Broadway usually has six-week rehearsal. And uh, the show wasn't finished being written. There were only six of the eight scenes of the first act written, only two scenes of the sixth and the second act. They had to write those scenes, and we had to learn them within that three-week period, you know? And I talked to Michael Price, who ran the theater, and he said, we weren't going to do Annie. We just couldn't seem to get it together. And I was in Paris with my wife, and I was shaving... And I was saying, tomorrow, tomorrow, I love you. So my wife said to me, if you like the song so much, why don't you produce the show? And he said, so, okay, I had second thoughts about it. So I called uh, Martin Charney and <coughs> Charlie Strauss together and uh, Tom Meehan, who was writing, and uh, asked him to let's go back to the show. But I wrote the plot of the show. I actually wrote the plot because I was the villain but there were only six scenes, and there wasn't anything really in there about the villain. They come in, they meet, they meet uh, the sister in the orphanage, and that's it. And I, I said, Tom, can I talk to you at some point? So we went to lunch the next day in, in the 
Goshen in the house, uh, uh, restaurant next door. I said, Tom, why am I on the show? So what do you mean? He said, well, I'm the villain. I don't do anything bad. So well, what would you do? This was his first show that he'd written. And he had written for ladies' magazines and things, but he'd never written a play. And I said, well, uh, I have to do something bad, something bad to Annie so that uh, the people will root for her and Warbucks, you know? So, well, well what would you do? And I went, oh, my God, am I the writer here? You know? uh, well, I don't know. The second act, the only scene I've seen is the two shows. One is... One is the radio show where Orf, oh, where, where Warbucks offers a $50,000 reward to find Annie's parents. And I said, Tom, Lily and I, my girlfriend and I, are the parents. That's it. We're the, wow, this is it. We're the parents. Uh, okay. We come into the orphanage to get Annie, and we have a phony driver's license. Uh, we have a birth certificate, fake birth certificate. Oh, and there's the locket she was talking about. She has half a locket wearing it on her neck. And I, we find out about that through my sister. We get another locket like it, make a half. So we have, we go, oh, we go to the Warbucks mansion and he's not there, but the, uh, the woman that's in charge of all his affairs is there and we show her the locket. We show her the birth certificate, the driver's license. She lets us have Annie, and she gives us the $50,000 check. And we go back to the orphanage. Uh, we lock her up. Uh, in the meantime, Warbuck comes home and says, I want to adopt Annie. And this is all like, like this is happening, you know. Uh, we want to adopt her, and uh, where is she? I'm sorry, so her real parents came. How dare you give, give them away? without letting me see her first. So he sends out the cops, the National Guard, and to find us. And um, anyway, they find us and they lock us up and, and they, she, he uh, adopts her and happily ever after. And uh, that's what I came up with at lunch with Tom. And three days later, he's written a scene where we come in and he's written a scene in the second act, where we come in again now as the old couple, <coughs> and uh, and we meet Annie, and oh, oh, it's the adoption scene for Warbucks. He's adopting her, and the old parents come in, and uh, so that that was it. And then they find out we're fake, and of course the bird is in jail. So that 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 all happened. The plot of the show all happened at lunch when I was talking to Tom Meehan. Mm -hmm. Later on when we were doing it in Washington, D.C., I thought to myself, I thought, you know, this this villain I'm playing, he's just a sort of snively, wise wise guy. He's, he's a braggart. He's not really dangerous. He doesn't do anything bad. I have to, ah, I have to do something bad so the audience will hate me. And Ruth for Warbucks and Annie. It's the same thing, except it didn't go far enough. Well, how could I do that? Oh, a switchblade knife. I will do a magic trick. Uh, at one point, I say, Aggie, my sister, we'll get the money, we'll get the kid, and we'll get the hell out of town. And she says, 
oh yeah, the kid. What do we do about the kid? And I said, Aggie, that ain't no problem. And I want something to disappear. It just disappears for good. <laughs> right. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, the, the writer says, no, no, we can't do that. That's just, this is a family audience. We can't do that. Maybe we'll do that in a movie. Well, he did do it in a movie. They did a lot in a movie. Chasing her up the drawbridge with a knife and the whole thing. But, okay. So he wouldn't, he wouldn't accept that idea. And I couldn't go to Martin Charing because if it's not his idea, he won't use it. So I was afraid that he was, everybody was going to say no. And I knew this was going to be good. I just knew it in my soul. So I said to Aggie and Lily, who were playing the, you know, the parts, I said, I'm going to do this knife thing. So I won't do it in your face. I'll do it over there. Because when I turn over here, you know, the audience can't see. So it won't scare you in your face. But anyway, I'll do it. So you can react. So I did it. And uh, we get the money, we get the kid. Aggie, boom, that ain't no problem. And I want something to disappear. Just disappear. But good, uh, whatever, right? And when I did that, the audience went, <gasps> and they were totally quiet. And I knew, yes, it worked. And that first night when I came on to the bows, the audience went, boo! I went, ha, <laughs> their face. I couldn't help it. But I knew it worked. And Tom Meehan and Martin China knew it worked. Now are they going to say no? Because now there was danger in what I did. Now the odds are, are so much further ahead for the play because the audience really hopes, oh my God, don't let him, don't let him get a hold of her, don't let him touch her. Because at one point I touch her when we come in, oh, my little girl, ooh, the audience goes, ooh, he might knife her, or that, you know, it's her imagination. And uh, so after the show, Martin walked around me very quietly and he said, all right, keep it in. He resented he didn't come up with the idea. Anyway, I was very happy about that. All those ideas, you know, that worked because it made the play came a hit, you know. Yeah. And actually, I have staged, restaged the show, including one of the Broadway tours, a dozen times, twelve times. I've staged that all over the country, different places, you know. I wanted to ask you about restaging it. So when you do do that. What are some of the things you keep from Martin Charnin, and then what are some of the things that you change or add? Oh, <laughs> uh, well, thanks. Um, I pretty much keep it the way it was, you know. I don't really change anything. Um, I never, however, I never gave the knife away. <clears throat> um, they fired us. There was a big firing in Annie. Um. The show lasted about five and a half years, <clears throat> and at about three and a half years into it, they fired the whole cast, including me. <clears throat> and uh, because they were they were very greedy, and it was around between Thanksgiving and Easter, and they waited until January to fire us. <clears throat> but they claimed that uh, they weren't making as much money. Well, traditionally, 
Thanksgiving and Christmas are usually slow times because people are at home, you know, they're having dinners or they're having Christmas or whatever. And I, I, had, I had heard that we might be fired and that, that it was over the fact that the sales had gone down. And I looked at Billboard, which kept a list of how much each show made each week. <clears throat> and it's true, we went down less, but we went down from 104%, which means standing room only, to 97%, which is still pretty good. That's 7%. But the other shows were down like around 86%. We were 97 <clears throat> So we were doing, still doing better than all the other shows. And the day we got fired, I said, why are you doing this? Because the show went down. I said, well, here's Billboard. Here's Billboard if you want to read the week that you said we went down. And you'll see if you read, if you're smart enough to read Billboard, you'll see that the other shows went down at least 10% below us. And uh, so we did pretty damn good. You know, and besides, you've been doing six months at 104%. So if you want to find it, if you're finding that you want to blame us, it's not us. It's what the season says. And if you still want to fire us, then you're idiots. Because I knew we were going to get fired, so I didn't care what I said at that point. <laughs> so we all got fired. But about a year later, they were firing another guy playing my part, Rooster. And they didn't have the new guy. He couldn't come in for a month. So they called me up and said, would you come in for a month and play your part? And I said, yeah, sure. So, so I found out, I called the guy playing Rooster that was leaving or was fired. I said, how much money are you making? You don't mind telling me. So he told me. So when I went in to sign the contract, the guy had down here what I originally made, which was a lot less because they they were not paying people what they said at six months. They said that if the show's doing good, we'll, we'll, we'll up your salaries because we had to keep it low because we didn't know if we'd do well. Well, they did do well and they didn't honor their contract. Mm -hmm. And anyway, there's another story, but there was a lot of bad stuff that happened with that show and yet it survived anyway. Anyway. I said, well, I, I'm not going to do it then. So what do you mean? I said, well, I want this much money. So well, you can't have that. I said, well, that's what you're paying the guy you just fired. And I'm the original. I should be asking you for more than he made. I'm only asking you for what he made. So you're not prepared to give me what I'm owed and what's due and what you're used to. Then go find yourself another rooster. Bye. So I found out they can fire us. But I can also fire them. Yeah. All right, all right, all right, all right. So he didn't want to have to go through the trouble, you know. Anyway, I got the money I wanted, and I was in there for a month. And the other cast came up to me and said, you were really good. I said, well, that's, thank you, that's very nice. He said, well, we were told that they let the, you guys go because you weren't very good. I said, uh -huh. so they lied all over the place, didn't they? I said, we, we were good enough for five and a half years, or three and a half years of the five, five and a half. And uh, so they were lied to as well. So anyway, so the money part of the business can be awful, can be bad. People are greedy, you know. Anyway.
I do want to ask you just one more thing about Annie, which is what was your sort of relationship like with Dorothy Loudon and everyone else who was in the cast originally? Well, it was good because um, well, Dorothy came and she was brand new when we did Broadway. There were a couple of people who were changed. The girl playing Lily was changed, my girlfriend, and the girl playing, the woman playing uh, Hannigan's part was, uh, was changed. And uh, Dorothy was really good. And the girl, the new girl was very good playing Lily. So, uh, yeah, that was, no, that was fine. That was fine. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm trying, I was just trying to think of any other stories like that. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, no, they, they made a good choice in, in that when they got new people. The old people were good, but they didn't have the edge that these new people had, you know. They had done it in summer stock, and they needed to get people as quickly as possible and to make it work because they suddenly decided they were going to do it after they said they weren't going to do it. So... They, they cast it very quickly, and uh, <clears throat> then when they went to Broadway, which was four months after uh, Goodspeed closed, they had the time to uh, figure out that they what they needed that was different, you know, whom, whom they wanted that was different. So I, I get along with everybody <clears throat> because we were such a tight-knit group. Since the show wasn't really ready to be going on, everybody was kind of asked for help. I get Bordeaux, who played the the, the butler. Uh, he came up with the uh, the song in Hooverville uh, about the weather, and he said, "He said I remember my grandmother. She was talking about the depression, <clears throat> and they didn't have warm clothes, so they would put newspapers underneath their coat to keep them warm." And he mm -hmm. said, "I mentioned that, and they wrote that into the lyrics of the show, you know." So everybody would give little bits of information when they were trying to figure things out. So I wasn't the only one. So as a result, everybody really was uh, a terrifically close ensemble. You know, so we all really liked each other and appreciated what each other did. And you know, we were we were a family really. <clears throat> so. So, so I, I want to ask you about the next Broadway show you did, which was Do Black Patent Leather Shoes Really Reflect Up? We were in Philadelphia for six months. I played Father O'Reilly. I was the only priest in the character in the show. So it was the first uh, Catholic musical that um, had dancing, singing in it. The others, the other... Up to that point, you know, the other Catholic musical uh, shows were plays, but ours was the first musical. Uh, the, it was so funny because, like I talked to you about uh, uh, the other one, where the audience was laughing so hard, this was a different kind of response from the audience. <clears throat> and I could tell that most of the audiences were basically Catholic because all of the situations where you would understand it if you were Catholic. And, uh, and so many of the things that we learned as kids were myths. I mean, the, the church changed it, like babies going to limbo uh, who weren't baptized, and all of that changed, and all of those stories kind of disappeared. But 
we had a lot of those kinds of stories in the show, and people would start to laugh because they remembered what they'd been taught. The funny reactions that people had. It, it, again, it was one of those shows where you'd start to talk to your partner on stage, or the other character, and audience would laugh again. That was that was the second one that kind of mirrored you know, the first one I talked about with Don Amici. But uh, I liked the show a lot. The problem was the problem was the uh, author thought that when we came into New York, the uh, there wasn't any sex in the show, but as the as the priest, I was supposed to tell the kids about sex. And when I actually wasn't in, in Catholic school from seventh grade on through high school, and we had a priest that came in and told us about sex, and uh, uh, not specifically the actions of it, but you know what happens, the sex, the babies, and all that kind of thing. And those in that time were still something a lot of parents found a hard time telling their kids about. Yeah. And, uh, I remember my father, who was a Baptist, he went up to the rectory, the priest's house, after this one session with the priest, knocked on the door, and the priest came to the door and he said, I want to thank you <coughs> for explaining to my son some of the basics about sex. He said, I couldn't do it. He said, so you kind of broken the, you kind of opened the door <coughs> to make him aware of the basic fundamentals about sex. So my father thanked him. So uh, a lot of that was in the show and they were funny. There wasn't anything dirty about it or anything. And they were things that people were still laughing about. And he was afraid it would be too much for a New York, New York audience. So he took all the references for that, the sex thing, he took them out of the show. And it was no longer funny. It was kind of a boom. It was the, uh, it was a real, uh, it really energized the laughs, those moments. And that, that carried through with everything else. But without that initial pop joke, the show just folded. And we folded after the first week. The uh, author made a big mistake. And he, he took the basic fun out of the show. So, anyway, that was too bad, because it was fun. It was fun to do. Then I did want to ask you about accidental death of an anarchist. So you were a stand, you were a standby in this show. So did you get to go on a lot or not a lot? I actually, um, this is a funny thing, because um, the show was, a, the producer was my, uh, Alex Cohen, who had done the Hells of Poppins thing with Jerry Lewis. And I told you I'd been in, uh, for a week, I'd been in litigation because he was suing Jerry for a million dollars. And basically, I was talking about the producer doing this mean thing. So I never thought, I never thought he would hi ever hire me again. And he called me up to do it. I couldn't believe it. And, and uh, he had no grudges or anything else, you know. 
besides besides he got his million dollars <laughs> so anyway i was the understudy and uh and it was kind of it was kind of fun because the show had been written by an italian and he came to the united states to help them uh figure out just what the plot was all about and if anybody had any questions he was going to be there he wasn't the director in the united states because uh, he had to have an interpreter to uh, speak english for him you know so he wouldn't have been able to direct it in the united states with the with the language problem but uh he came over and that was interesting um yeah no i never got to go on so that lasted i don't know how long that lasted Let's see no i didn't have that down it was basically a straight play there was no song and dance in it yeah that i was going to ask you you this was i think your first time on broadway being in a play in a serious play so was that something that you like doing or something that you want to do again well i did do it when i did the actor studio and i did the plays there those oh, were plays you know and after yeah, after that i did a, a lot of other straight plays uh, regionally and uh, you know in uh, and films so straight plays so but it was on broadway because everything else had been a musical so you replaced i believe in the will rogers follies so how did you sort of audition for that or how did you come into it well i started doing uh principal parts so i came into uh audition i can't think of his name i just auditioned i sang and uh read read for the part and uh i had been building up my reputation as a principal actor and i was the right age at the time so uh i got the part you know and uh yeah i liked it uh larry gatton had taken over and he was now playing will rogers and uh he was a nice man with the gatton brothers he, he was a singer with the gatton brothers and uh he had had terrible troubles with his vocal cords and couldn't sing anymore he had this one uh surgeon surgeon in texas who performed a very delicate operation on his cords and they saved his cords he had nodes on his cords and couldn't sing and he had to scrape the nodes off the cords very delicate operation so after that it healed he went to an opera teacher a sing a teacher of opera music and the, the man saved his voice with his exercises and he was so grateful when he got into the show uh will rogers follies that he gave everybody in the show a free lesson with this uh dramatic mm -hmm. singing teacher and that was really generous and kind of him you know so uh i went and the thing i learned from uh, <laughs> the opera teacher was he said the most important thing to do is uh is uh to keep your mouth open open your mouth <laughs> but it's true some people talk like this you know they don't move their lips at all or their jaw so you have to i mean your mouth your jaw is a muscle just like your arms and your legs 
and that has to be exercised in, in singing lessons and all that. If you want to be heard. I know that you told the story last time about doing a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, and I want to ask you, how did you, what was it like to work with Whoopi Goldberg and the whole cast? She was great. Uh, Whoopi, Whoopi was great. It's it's the first time it's the first time a woman had done the role. Zero Mostel originated it, and she was a woman, so she she kind of had to find her own way because it was different, you know having a woman in the part and uh she uh i was a dirty old man in in the part with with the nagging wife and she would sit in the back back in the wings and she'd play with some of the kids that were there some of the actors had kids in the show i mean you know backstage and she would play with them it was very sweet very sweet and uh, a really hard worker so and a lot of funny things happened. She would actually talk to the audience. You know? <laughs> Did you see that? Did you see that? <laughs> well, you all pay attention to me? <laughs> Whatever. She was very funny. Very funny. Very smart, too. Very smart. I want to take a quick detour from your stage career to ask you about some of the movies you did. So, how is sort of auditioning a different thing from movies? Yeah, um, yeah. You go in to a room usually, um, mostly mostly in a room. Uh, it's different now though than it was then. And uh, the director's sitting at a table, and you've got the script. You've had the chance to read it outside. And they'll have somebody in there who's reading it with you. You know, they're not auditioning; they're just the reader. And uh, and you do it, you know, you, you read the part and uh, or if you know the part by now, then you just do it. I went in. I went in to audition for Scrooge in Christmas Carol and, uh, and there was an English director there and he came up to me and he said he had my resume and he came up to me and he said, oh, boy, you're, you're a lovely dancing boy. How nice of you to come with us today, but you know, I won't be needing to hear you. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. And he dismissed me. In other words, I couldn't act because I danced. Because on my resume, there was, I left a few things there about dancing. Three days later, I couldn't believe this. I had another audition for the same show, but it was uh, going out to Indianapolis. They were going to open there. And this director said, I want you to read for the uh, same part. So I read for the, the father. And he said, oh, huh. Well, let me give you the script of the, uh, uh, the guy that, uh, Marley's Ghost. Marley's Ghost. So read for Marley's Ghost. So I took my, my papers out and about five minutes to look at them. And he said, okay, come in. So I did Marley's Ghost. Uh, and uh, he said, okay, yeah, huh. Here, take take the script and read for Scrooge. So I went, okay. <laughs> and I went in and read for Scrooge, and he said, okay, you got the part. So three days, the guy before I looked at dancing, he said, oh, dancing, bye. <laughs> and this guy was listening. He wasn't judging. 
you know? Yeah. And uh, so I got the part. That was really interesting. So, yeah. So sometimes, but nowadays, because of COVID, uh, I have a friend that's an actor. His agent calls him and he said, I'm emailing you the script. You have to print it out. No more going and getting the script, you know? Yeah. And he said, uh, put that on tape and send it to me. Oh, my God. Now you have to be your own technician. You have to have the light set up, the sound set up. Probably what you've done there in order to do this podcast. You've got the set, well, at least the sound. And But, I mean, it looks like you have, you know, the video as well. I mean, you could from, from your standpoint. But you're doing it, you know. But now the actors have to be their own technicians and send these things out. Well, a lot of the commercials I did, you'd go into a room and you would read the copy. And if the director were there, he would say, okay, okay, well, try it this way. Try it with this idea. And you'd try that way. He said, okay, yeah, good, good. Uh, try this way. You might get a chance to do it a third way. Uh, but if there were no director there, it was just a guy taking the film, you'd only get a chance to read it once. And he said, yeah, okay, great, thanks a lot, goodbye, whatever. You know, you wouldn't get a chance. So now it's kind of like that again because you're sending in one shot, one video of you doing this thing. It's really, it's really kind of ugly, I think. You know, it's, it's not as much, A, it's not as much fun. B, it's harder to do because you're your own technician with lights, sound, camera, whatever. How, how do you do all that? Well, it's kind of unfair in a way. We have to be our own technicians. We should get paid more then. <laughs> Uh, any rate, uh, yeah, so sometimes, sometimes you'll get uh, recommended by somebody, you know, yeah. somebody will recommend you and, uh, and maybe they'll have seen you in something and they'll say, yeah, you'd be, you'd be good for that. So sometimes I wouldn't audition at all. The agent would call and say, yeah, you got the role. Or, wow. Wow. <coughs> so anyway. So I, wa I was asking you about movies and TV, so now I want to ask you, what have been some of your favorite specific projects to do? Um, well, I don't know. Some of the films I did were Two Family House, Street of the Flower Boxes, Thinner, Stephen King, uh, Pennies from Heaven. And it was written in England, Pennies from Heaven. And uh, the way it was done, the way it was shot was every character would break out in song, song from the 30s, and they would lip sync it, meaning they would pantomime saying it, and the, the, the original voice on the recordings would come on, and you'd have to imitate them, you know, and uh, it was kind of funny. Steve Martin was, was in it, went in the, the, uh, the U.S. film version, so they did it. There were three of us in it, Steve Martin, Tommy Wall, and myself. And we did this dance. Uh, we had a little, we had a scene before, uh, which basically they cut out of them. When you, when you play it for somebody, they just basically play the film of the, of the number. Well, I'll send that to you, finish remember. It's the girl was the number in the show. It's the girl, whatever. And I, I think it's really nice. Okay. Um, Evening Shade. Uh, Burt Reynolds, yeah. 
was his uh, series. Evening Shade did that. I, I choreographed one of them. Uh, early on, he did Once Upon a Mattress in black and white. He did the first black and white special. And she was like eight, going on nine months pregnant. That's and every Carol woman, Burnett. And every woman in the show was, uh, the costume made her look like she was pregnant. So they're all walking around pregnant. It was very funny. But Carol, at this point in time, was really pregnant. And uh, the choreographer, Danny Daniels, who did Pennies from Heaven, he said to her, uh, Carol, uh, I'm going, she was standing on this six-foot, uh, I don't know, like a bridge. He said, I'm going to have you jump into the arms of the guys below. And she jumped. Oh, really? There were all two of us there, standing opposite each other, and she jumped. And there's not six guys there. And she's pregnant. And she's flat out in the air. And we said, oh, my God. And we dove under her, and we all landed on the floor with our hands under her. And uh, I think it saved her baby. But <laughs> just thinking about it, I get terrified. Yeah. Oh, my God. So the last thing that I want to ask you about is your directing at the Actors Studio. Yeah. I co-directed uh, and choreographed Hillbilly Women, which uh, is based on a book about different women that lived in like, Tennessee, Hillbilly. Uh, I can't remember, actually. It's a long ago. It's in the late 70s. I did um, choreographed and co-directed In White America, which was a book. No, it was an off-Broadway play, the first Broadway off-Broadway play or any play that had both a white and a black cast in it. That was 1960. That was done in 1963 off-Broadway. Well, it was the same year that uh, uh, the president was 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 killed was shot kennedy and it was about it was a little bit about that but it was about different situations um throughout history in times of civil war and later on through history when uh, people sang gospels and they sang spirituals it was about in a sense the white black experience different situations and uh, so they decided to do it again, to redo it at the Actors Studio, 1982. And uh, as I started to direct it, I said to uh, uh, the other woman in charge, I said, I don't think this is going to be anything. I said it was in 1962 or whenever they did it. It was because it was the first one of its kind. But now it's a bunch of different scenes. And there's nothing, it doesn't go anywhere. And people have said, okay, we've seen it. It's been there, so what? I said, I think there has to be a, a theme running through it. She said, well, there's a narrator who talks about each scene ahead of time. And I got, ah, how about if the narrator is a young boy and he's seeing the scenes, talking about them, but seeing them maybe for the first time. So he's learning about his own history, the black history in white America. And he's learning about his history. And then at the end, after all the scenes are done, he's sort of a grown man. 
I mean, he's grown up in his head anyway. And he sings his own song of independence. And that was the idea that struck. And uh, so we had this young guy who was really good. We went up to, uh, we went up to a church in Harlem and the, the, the minister gave us two young guys that he said he thought could act. And we auditioned them and, and one was really good. One was really right. So he became the, our narrator. And, uh, uh, and the, the studio found us a man who had escaped from Russia, who was a composer. <clears throat> and he escaped during the Cold War. And he was now working at a, uh, a young people's camp in Connecticut with, uh, I can't think of the actor who runs the camp. But anyway, because he was with the actor's studio, uh, Madeline, who, uh, Marilyn, who was working with me on the play, said, well, I know him. Let me ask him if he'll compose something for us. So she got the guy down and he ended up being uh, the, 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 uh, the player and the composer for the show. And he wrote this, this wonderful uh, gospel song of celebration for this young, young man. And that, that ended the show and that was, ah. And then I had a friend who was about 17 years old and uh, from, uh, from where we lived. And I brought him to the show so he could see it. And I waited for him outside after the audience left and he didn't come out. And I went in and he was the only one in there. And he was sitting there crying in, in the, uh, you know, in the audience, in the pews. And I went, Steve, what's the matter? He said, oh, I, I kind of know this history, but when I see this play, I lived the history. I lived it with all those people. And he said, it was so terrible. What happened to all these people all these years? And he said, it was awful. I just, it affected me so much. I just, I just couldn't get up without, I have to stop crying at some point. <clears throat> so I was really happy with that. And somebody said it was the best play they'd ever done at the actor studio, which was an incredible compliment because they've done a lot of plays at the actor studio, you know? But that one was, you know, was really great. The other one was uh, Secret Pies of New England Women. <laughs> it was written, it's a true story. This woman wrote about her father who had started the Boston Marathon, the 6.2 mile marathon. <clears throat> and we did it in New Jersey and I played the lead, the son. And uh, then she was able to take it to the actor's studio and redo it there. Well, I wasn't a member of the actor's studio, so I wasn't going to play the lead. And uh, I said, well, good luck with it. And I got a call. So we want you to come in and audition. I went, okay, I'm not a member of the studio, but they asked me to come in and audition. Okay. <laughs> I had directed and choreographed there, but I hadn't acted. So I went in and they had me audition for the old man. He's 74 years old. And he's with this old woman who's in a wheelchair who's had a stroke. And all she, all she could say is, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, she tries to indicate, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, and Madeline Sherwood played that part. My God, what a hard part. Because you try to express something, but just, uh, 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 try to make yourself understood, you know. At any rate, 
So at any rate, um, okay, they called me up and said, we want you to do it. And I said, no, 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 I don't want to do it. So why? I said, because I'm 48 years old at the time, and I'm playing a 74-year-old. The actor's studio is very close. The, the audience is close to you. You know, I can literally reach out and touch people in chairs. It's not on a stage. It's an old church. And I'm, I'm putting lines on to be the old man, and they'll see the lines. I want this to be about, not about, didn't they play a nice old man? I want it to be about, didn't they have a great relationship, those two? I want it to be about the story, not about my makeup, for God's sake. Mm. I said, well, Madeline wants you to do it. I went, uh, okay, I won't use lines. I'll use uh, uh, mirror spots and uh, do something with my hair and wear little glasses. And, and then I, we had four weeks of rehearsal. The third week, I said, I got everything, the Boston accent, everything. But I don't have the physicality, the old man. He doesn't lean over, you know. He, he's still running the marathon at his age of 74. He's still running. He created to help create the marathon. Then I walked out my front door, and there were two old maid ladies who lived across the street. And the one woman was exactly what I thought the old man would look like, walking, carrying her little cart. I followed her to the grocery store, watched her pick up groceries. Off, followed. I said, oh, my God, that's it, that's it. So I was able to practice imitating what she did. And I found my physicality for the character. And at uh, any rate, that was another discovery for me how to do that, to play old age, you know? Because uh, I was almost 30, 30 years away from it. So now I can play that age. <laughs> That's how I met Madeline Sherwood. And we ultimately bought her house in uh, Canada. And uh, she helped me with my workshops for magicians. And uh, she had an acting class. My daughter and my wife went to it. And I think it changed their lives. And uh, my daughter suddenly did a starring role in an off-Broadway show. And my wife joined a repertory company in New York City and was doing roles there. And Madeline was great. She was really great. So then the, I just want to ask you one final question for this interview, which is after theater comes back, what kind of thing do you think you want to do? Oh, thank you. Um, in 1999, I kind, of, I kind of retired, but I still... I'm pretty darned active, you know, and uh, what I started doing was directing and coaching magicians. While they may do tricks, they don't know how to act, and they have to know how to present themselves. Uh, maybe they don't know how to find a character. They Maybe they don't know who they are. They do tricks. That's not good enough. You have to be entertaining. You have to capture people with your stories. Um, you have to know how not to have stage fright. Uh, you have to know how to learn a script, how to write a script. What's that? How to, you have to learn how to speak, how to move. Things they've never done. They've done magic in the light sleight of hand, but they've never really had to speak and do all those kinds of things. And now, with COVID, it's even harder because they have to do it virtually. You know, you can't say, pick a card because there's nobody there to pick a card. So you have to do interactive things with people. You have to really be able to talk to people. And uh, so anyway, I've, I've worked with a lot of, I've worked with over 400 magicians, coaching them, 
Um, a lot of ism winners. I worked with David Copperfield, worked with David Blaine, uh, created some magic for Blaine special. <coughs> uh, I worked with Chris Angel <coughs> and uh, a lot of international magicians. So uh, uh, I have to, uh, on Tuesday, I have to coach somebody speech lessons uh, with one magician. Uh, I have to interview with another one on a, a Zoom cast at Friday. So it, I've been busy virtually, you know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's different. And uh, because I know magic, when I got the job originally with Copperfield, um, he had gone to the magic store and asked them, I need a director who understands magic. I mean, a theater director who understands magic, not just any director. And the guy gave him my name because he knew I was in the theater and I directed and he knew I knew magic. So that's how I got the job with David, David Copperfield. And that was a long time ago. But I worked with him the year before last again in, in Las Vegas. With his, at his show there at the Grand Hotel. So, anyway, so that's what I've been doing a lot, and I'm going out to California, and uh, I have to work at the Magic Castle and uh, with, with a couple of people, coaching them, and another person virtually. So, so I'm still doing stuff, you know, yeah. <laughs> creating stuff and writing stuff. So, that's kind of what I'm at. Thank you so much for doing this. I'm honored to have been able to hear your stories. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. I know you probably enjoyed this episode as much as I did, and it's been a pleasure for me to be able to bring the amazing life and anecdotes of Bob Fitch to you. If, if you, you liked, liked what you, you heard, remember to tune back in next time when I talk to Michael Levine. Aside from having the largest privately owned sheet music collection in the world, Michael is also a longtime cabaret music director whose projects have included the songs of Stephen Schwartz, The Algonquin Kid, and his popular series Michael Levine and Friends. His work at the York Theatre has included their productions of Billion Dollar Baby and Carmelina, and he is also the longtime pianist for the Outer Critics Circle Awards. At the Kennedy Center, he has co-starred with Mimi Hines in the Rogers and Hart Review, This Funny World. He is also an extremely respected vocal coach whose clients include Broadway's Best and Brightest. You may also know Michael from his albums, including the Lost Broadway series and Hamlish Uncovered, so you won't want to miss this episode. Thanks again for tuning in. <laughs>